I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Today's episode discusses topics of suicide. If you or anyone you know needs help, please call 13 11 14. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. Tell me about the first time you got arrested. Ripped his screen door off, went in his house and then flogged him. Shit, here we are. I've always had it in my mind that we're going to be rich and successful. I'm like, I've got a bit of a mountain to climb here. With jail, it's a blessing. I've got more than I lost, for sure. The blessing of, like, perspective. The world's not at all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. There's someone in bad circumstances. Yeah. Who's thinking, what the fuck? What would you say? Your life is 100% like your fault. And it's all within your control. And you've got to figure that out on, on your own. Because there's no one coming to save you. Everyone's doing their own thing. And so it's not the circumstances that you're in, it's what you're made of. And so you get to decide, like, what the fuck you're made of. Brad Gimbert, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Good to have you here. Finally. Yeah, finally. Thanks, man. All right, mate. Let's just cut to the chase here. So uh, give me a bit of a bit of colour around anything you know about your biological parents. Not too much. My biological parents, they were both, from what I know, both were heroin addicts. So when I was born... Um, I was a heroin baby, so I had heroin in the system. Um, this, the process of that is they sort of got to get you off it. They give you more to sort of get you off it. So when I was born, I had a bunch of problems. I was born deaf, like one ear, underdeveloped, I think premature as well. Um, but what I know about them, yeah, they were, I think they were both on the heroin and had a bunch of problems themselves. So my dad was Aboriginal yeah. um, and part Lebanese, but mostly Aboriginal. Um, and then my mum was just Anglo-Saxon. Where did this all happen? So where were you so born? I was born in Bathurst. You got adopted? Got adopted into a family. So my dad that adopted me, he's stolen generation, so he's Aboriginal as well. So your adopted father was a, a Aboriginal indigenous man, man? Yeah. But one of the stolen generation. Yeah. So he got raised in a, a white family. Well, he actually got raised in, so his mother was Lebanese and his dad was Irish. Wow. Yeah, so he's got so some. Pretty white. Fairly white, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's got some pretty colourful, like he's. Like we, uh, my mum's side, uh, adoptive mum, her sister's married Lebanese, so we've got like Lebanese uncles and things like that. And yeah. he grew up very much like Lebanese people. <laughs> okay, so your yeah. so adopted dad, Indigenous man, but brought up by um, Lebanese, Lebanese and Irish uh, Person, cultures. Yeah. Like what they got told is that like his mum didn't want him and, and a bunch of like all these other things and was sort of saving him. Figured out later on that like he was stolen. He looked for his mum for about 20 years and the 19th year she'd passed away. But she'd already passed away when he found her. Yeah, one year prior. So I've been looking for 20 years. and But they've been getting told by multiple government agencies and whoever else that was, oh, she didn't want you. She was on the drugs. She took off. She gave you up. bunch of lies, really. She was just sitting at um, Kudamundra Girls' home, locked away. And what about your adopted mum? She was a two-pound pom. 
And trip out Pompey, yeah, like a migrant. Yeah. That would have been the 60s or something like that. Her mum was English and her dad was Irish. Right. Yeah. So you've got a bit of Irish, uh, at least Irish cultural stuff going on there. We are very similar to Irish people in a way. Yeah, yeah. really? Well, like punching on. Especially with a few drinks aboard. Absolutely. <laughs> and my mum being Irish. Like I know what that the deal is. So like uh, yeah, the fine Irish, well known. Yeah, 100%. Well, part of it as well is like colonisation too. They tried to do what they've done here. Yeah, the English. Ireland. The English. English, did. yeah. Well, they did. They, they took control it. of Ireland. Yeah, they won a little bit, you know, whereas we got we got annihilated. Well, that's interesting you should say because uh, the English used to ban Irish language, yep. Gaelic, yep. and actually went and changed all the street signs and then started teaching English in the schools. But mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been told stories about how the Irish people – um, used to do Irish classes behind hedges and stuff like that in, mm. order, in, in other words to keep the language alive. And I guess there's some sort of similarity in terms of when you're occupied yep. by a, a larger force that you hang on to your your culture yeah, relative to your community. Yep. When did you find that you are adopted? I've always been a bit cluey as a kid. Like they got me tested because I could read at a really, really young age and I found out when I was about seven. I sort of understood the whole Shemoz when I was about seven. My real mum would write to me when I was young. And I'd yeah. write back to her. Oh, so she knew where you were? At first, yeah. Biological mum, yeah. Yes. And then I haven't been able to track it down since. I haven't really t- tried too hard, to be honest. But um, once I sort of understood what was going on, um, I understood that my parents had problems with drugs, weren't really capable of, of raising me, and so then adopted me out. My dad was locked up at the time. He was in jail at the time. So what I know and what I learned like later on, only a few years ago from meeting my biological sister, is that he actually looked for me for a time. So they agreed to adopt me out. And then once I had been adopted, I think after like I was about maybe nine or ten, then he decided that he didn't want me to be adopted anymore and sort of just started trying to get in touch with us. I didn't know about that at the time. I learned that later on. He's since passed away from liver cirrhosis and things like that. Um, or kidney failure or something like that. But he was locked up at the time. My mum was out, my real mum. Uh, she was obviously wasn't in jail, but they, they had mass problems with drugs. And so I see it as like a blessing. Like I, I definitely wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I was born, raised and grew up in Bathurst with two heroin addict parents. I don't think that would have been. How does it make you feel when you think about it? Like what, when you were seven or nine? I was upset about it, I guess, because it was a narrative that people tell me. They go, oh, man, that must be. Tough and things yeah. like that, you know. And I'm like, and oh, you, yeah. you, you I guess so. that. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. I think it is, you know. But it's really not like I don't really know anything different other than you know, it's my mum and dad. I know I got my mum and dad, which is my good, stable mum and dad, yeah. loving parents. And I think like a mum and dad, or like a mother and father. I think you, that's a decision. You know, got plenty of people that have kids, like they're you know, they can have kids. Doesn't make him a mum or a dad. You know, yeah, like yeah. A, plenty of blokes can go and you can impregnate a hundred women. You know, it doesn't make you a dad. Yeah, totally. All right, and so. My mum and dad really like a mum and dad. They tried their best to, to raise me and give me as many opportunities as, as they could. And, you know, we faced a bunch of hardships in life, but they still never never switched off from being my mum and dad. And they could have because, you know, biologically not there. Um, but, yeah, that was, I think that's that's a choice. So it always like a, did register a bit and I was like it was definitely a little bit different for me growing up than, than a lot of other people because you've got a bit of that disconnect and always a bit of that question mark. I think it's overall it's a superpower because I've been able to like – decide and care more deeply about my family because I decide to and that's, you know, it's not biologically written. That's a they didn't do it because they conscious had decision. Yeah, yeah they, cons- they chose you. Yeah, it's a con- exactly. And um, I heard I was actually watching a movie on the plane the other day and I was we talking about an adopted kid and, and I was talking about, um, you know, why is it that adoptive, adopted kids always think that they're given up, whereas the same is also true. It's like someone someone chose you, you know, someone actually chose you. So I think it's a superpower, to be honest. Like, yeah, there's two ways of looking at it. Exactly. Or, or, or to look at it both ways. But 
You're right. It's not just someone gave you up and for whatever the reasons are, mm. but probably more powerful is that someone chose you for a reason because they wanted you. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. they kept you. I mean, so you didn't turn it to be an ass and they didn't turn it to be hopeless. Mm-hmm. They hung in there. So mm. They stuck with you. Yeah, absolutely. And so from a young age, I actually always had this like, that's that's sort of where it began of like I wanted to be really, really successful from a kid. Like when I was like six or seven, I was telling my dad, what color Ferrari you want, you know. <laughs> um, always wanted to give back to them because I was fully aware of, well, so what had happened was when I was writing to my mum and back and forth and whatnot, I stopped writing to her because I was like, well, well, I've got my mum here and then I've got my mum here. Well, I've got two mums. Like it doesn't make sense. And then sort of kept questioning a lot until eventually I got the beans out of them and then sort of learned a little bit more and um, – and then I, then I was just like, well, okay, I've got this lady who's my biological mum but nowhere to be found and not helping in any way, shape or form. And this person who's my mum who's adopted me and is doing the best. Like she's helping me read and you know, taking me to school and living a good life at the moment and, and all these sort of things. Like I was very aware of that at a young age. I always wanted to give back to my parents for that opportunity, you know. And then even like in recent years I've been able to buy them a house and that was the most gratifying thing, you know, be able to give back to them for, for doing that. No. By the way, you got a Lebanese, part Lebanese dad. You could oh, be Lebanese. Well, yeah, well, no, so I've got, I've traced the whole lineage. I've got a great, great, maybe great or two greats at least, Lebanese grandfather and that's it. So Bi- Biologically? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm talking about your adopted dad. Oh, no, he's got a, no, so he's just, he's black. Like he's. he's oh, he's yeah. black. He doesn't yeah. have any Lebanese in him. No, he's just got an adopted okay, because Lebanese, I was going to say, Lebanese you, you, could have, you could be Lebanese. I yeah. look it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it heaps. Yeah, do you? I was in Turkey and then uh, none of the, like I didn't get approached much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not trying to sell you, they're right? Like, ah, he's a local. Yeah, like, yeah. Mate, how you going? Like, oh, Australian, come here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah as soon as you open your mouth, you're in trouble. But like, so, right. so, so growing up as a kid, where'd you grow up in, in Sydney? Like, like uh, with your parents? Doing side. Dunside, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so Dunside right. and then Layla Park. Up until about 10, 11 years old, uh, 9, 10 years old, it was pretty good. So we, we jumped around. So we lived in Dunside and then we lived down in Glenmore Park, which is down in Penrith yep. for about two yep. years. So dad had his own house, nice house. It was sort of the thing, like they had two incomes, but mum was just working for fun, basically social reasons. Um, and then mum got really sick. So she had what's called a ileostomy. She had to get an ileostomy, which is like a colostomy bag, but yep. a bit more complex. She had to get 90% of her intestine out. So she got a bag and things like that. She nearly died several times. That was taking me from school. We are going out to Concord Hospital um, like every day basically to visit her because we were close family. Um, and then through that, like put a lot of financial pressure. Interest rates started to go up at that time. He, in a, he got advised to sell and he was at a, he was riding at a loss. So they sold at about 160 grand loss at the wow. time. So he lost all his equity. Bankrupted him. Yeah, yeah he actually went bankrupt. Bankrupt, wow. Yeah. So he couldn't because he couldn't pay back the debt. Couldn't pay back, back the, the debt. The total debt. Had to bankrupt. Yeah, bankrupted him. During that time, my brother had had his own kid and started his own family. He's got a bunch now, but that was his first kid and he'd moved out to uh, Glenmore Park. And so then between like dad was just working and trying to figure things out, now now aware of it, and then I was living with my brother and then going to school out in Glenmore Park. Um, so you moved in with your brother? Moved in with my brother, living, living with him in Glenmore Park. My sister was living at Parramatta in an apartment. So I was sort of just bouncing around like in school holidays. I'd go see my sister. Um Glenmore Park with my brother, started making friends out there. So that was year five and six. Um, didn't realise at the time dad's sort of juggling bankruptcy and trying to figure things out. Uh, I'm not sure he went – He didn't. I don't think he went bankrupt straight away but that was the sort of roll down and I'm living in Glenmore Park at the time. Uh, Mum's in hospital for like two years basically. We're all going out there and, and whatnot. It's pretty heavy-duty time. I remember a few times going out there and doing homework in 
well, we weren't allowed to do it in the intensive care ward, but I had my homework with me and we're in the intensive care ward and she'd had just cords like galore coming out of her and machines and, you know, she had like a stomach open, so it was horrendous smell and things like that. It was just pretty wild. Um, and, yeah, and we were sort of doing that. In hindsight, what effect do you reckon that had on you? Well, that the world's not like it's it's not all you know sunshine and rainbows. It's quite serious. Things can go things can go quite pear shaped, and it's it's in my ethos like now. Like obviously, I focus on property investing and things like that. But I'm aware that you can't. It's it's no joke going bankrupt, losing money, like building wealth and all that stuff. You got to do it properly because it can have a massive massive effect. Someone like my dad doesn't have any you know financial backing, nothing to back him up. One or two steps down, you know, you find yourself stuck in the mud, and Dad had already had some lingering health issues. So mum had got out, started to get healthy. Then dad's liver cirrhosis, emphysema started to kick in and he he got really crooked and he had to start taking time off work. So now that's like single income, now it's like half income, now it's like a quarter income um, and both got massive health issues, you know. While I was young, we're all just a family. We weren't the sort of family that was going on holidays and you know going to dinner and things like that. We were just like a big family and a lot of people around and things like that. But then by the time those things started to take effect, uh, mum and dad then got a house in Glenmore Park, tried renting, couldn't really keep up with that. Tried renting back out in Blacktown, couldn't really keep up with that. Then we went on the house commission list, um, was taking a long time. Dad got really, really crook at that point. And then me and my mum lived in a refuge. And we stayed there for about seven or nine months, somewhere in between there. So I actually started year seven um, from that refuge at Rudy Hill. So I went to Rudy Hill High for like one term. Were you a good student? I was a good kid, yeah. I was a band fives and sixes. And you like school? Nah, I like competing. Yeah, yeah I like winning things. At, the, at school I didn't really because I, I just thought, I always thought I was just, this is shit. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's not very challenging. Like, and that was, was uh, at, at a young age it was okay. But then year fives and things like that, then I was just, I realized I could just graze by. Yeah. Like I'd just get as much as everyone else and do whatever you had to do. Do whatever, I'd, just do whatever I wanted. And then that was like, that just went all the way through to high school. Like even in high school, I didn't, only done year 12 just because, well, no one else had done it in my family. I thought pretty easy win, but I didn't sit an ATAR because I'm like, I was aware that I'm not applying myself the most and I'm probably not going to. I'm just worried about girls and <laughs> whatever else, you know, yeah. just running around and, and boxing. And yeah. yeah, I was boxing at the time. Like I was just going to do that. Anyway, so yeah, then we got into House Commission. Um, that was at Layla Park, and that was like right in, right in the, right in the crux of it. You know, when we moved in there, there was like a bunch of needles. There was a dead dog in the house, and it was feral. Like a lot of the windows didn't close. Um, it's pretty chat. But then uh, we spent the first couple of like the, the, the car had like done burnouts all in the front yard. It was like all muddy and things like that. so we spent the first couple of weeks sort of fixing it up. Then we all then me and my mum and dad moved in there. And then from there it was like that's where it really sort of dawned on us, you know. Well definitely me. I was like, Well, shit. We're here, here we are. I'm like I've always had it in my mind that we're gonna be rich and successful. I'm like, I've got a bit of a mountain to climb here. Um and mum and dad had become really reserved, you know, obviously now I look back, it's like sort of defeated probably, in a way. Like probably depressed. Yeah, very depressed, you know, and got slapped around by life a little bit and rightly so. And that's where I, you know, that's where I now look back and love them even more because I'm like, far out. They still never stopped being my mum and dad um, and never really checked out. Like they were still just surviving and getting by. But it was very much just that, just, just surviving. And then at what stage did you start to hang out with the wrong kids? That was a conscious decision, I'd say. The problem with all these house commissioners is you're never going to have someone that's like a, got a good genetic makeup yeah. find their way in there. Like my, all of my friends, my two closest or three closest friends, one of them, his parents were active heroin addicts. The other one, um, his father had 
killed himself in jail and he's, he's living with his nana pop and he was just got out of jail for murder basically. And then my other mate, he had, uh, his dad was like a, an ex sort of drug dealer and, and things like that. So these were my three mates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were great people, you know, they were great blokes. Yeah, no, nothing wrong with them. That's right. But I'm like, just doing know, their best, but exactly. on the wrong side of law. 100%. Well, that, well, they weren't like, they weren't doing anything at that sort of point, but it's just like, that's if you follow what your parents do, which most people think you do, it's like, that's not, look, that's not a very rosy outlook, you know. Um, and two out of those three basically did, unfortunately. Um, through all that, like I made a bunch of friends and sort of got around it all. And like a bunch of people in the area that hadn't really no place in being there, but it was, they, you know, sort of tried to act like tough kids and all that sort of stuff. But there's some genuine tough stories in there. You could say I probably started hanging out with the wrong kids pretty much straight away. Well, not the wrong kids, probably probably just the kids. Just the kids. But like they just hanging the out with the kids. We all just come from the, the wrong environment. Yeah. Pretty much everywhere you looked. Yeah. Like mates up the road, around the corner, these other kids that we're fighting with, like all the same sort of thing. Um, and so I – so pretty much then I got into Seven Hills. That was very different from, you know, the other schools that I'd been to. It was a bit more rough. Um, not that much rough. Not that much more rough, but definitely like a bit more serious. I started getting – bullied and things like like I was very sensitive because my mom like I started fighting around in like year five and six that's where it sort of started to change I went from being like a really good grade a kid in primary school then my mom's in hospital and at the time it was like everyone's saying like your mom jokes you know or your mom this your mom that my mom's in hospital and so I was fighting like every day I couldn't even fight but we're just fighting about it so then when we got to high school that was like a bit more serious getting a getting a bit of that like just kids being kids picking on you but I'm sensitive so trying to fight about it and then started getting slack for being Aboriginal. There wasn't that many Aboriginal kids and once people jerried on that was Aboriginal, all the jokes like, you know, petrol sniffer and fucking I must be a drug addict and hopeless and and then at school doesn't help because they get you to, a tutor to sit. Like if they didn't know you're Aboriginal, they know you, they will by the end of the day because they get a tutor to come sit with you and a bunch of things. So I was always like had um, – with a bunch of the Islander kids and things like that, always like button heads around that and nearly getting into fights. And then one day I actually got into a fight with a kid and he was sort of my size, wasn't a big Islander kid or anything, but he was my size. And I got in a fight with him and I remember I, I didn't even like hurt him, so I beat him, but I didn't even like hurt him. I was like, fire out, this is, they're going to pick on me again tomorrow. So I'm like, I need to sort this shit out. So then I went and got into boxing, started getting into boxing um, and just learning how to fight really. So I'd done that for a period, actually around about six, seven months. And then funny story, so I'm hanging out with my mates and they wanted, they were, I don't know why they wanted to jump a cab, but they jumped a cab and we're in a cab and I'm in the middle. And um, they go to jump, well, never jumped a cab or done anything bad basically at this point, but they, they both jump out, they're out the door, boom, just jump out. And I'm like, gosh, do a little shuffle over, the cab just starts driving. I put my foot out and he starts driving and my shoe come off because he just starts driving. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, where are, you, where are you taking me? I'm sitting in this cab like, oh, kid. I'm like, where are you taking me? He's like, oh, man, he's going off at me. Indian guy, he's going off at me. He's like, oh, taking you to the police station, blah, blah, blah. And he's driving and luckily Layla Park is just riddled with cops. So he get, gets like two streets away and there's a cop car <laughs> and it's and he pulls up behind the cop car and just by chance he's at the trainer's house, like my boxing trainer's house because he's out the front. I think he's drunk, um, but he's punching on with his neighbour. <laughs> he's having a fight with his neighbour. Your trainer is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he's a champion. He's still – he's trained heaps of he's, – he's a chance. But anyway, he's he's out the front fighting with his neighbour or whatnot. He pulls up behind the guy and then the trainer comes up and he's like, what's going on here? But like before the cops got there. And then uh, he's like, oh, I'll get the police. He's like, mate, what are you doing? You're kidnapping kids. Well, so he's, <laughs> he starts abusing him, starts trying to fight the cabbie. Cop comes over. Anyway, the trainer pays him. And then he's like – 
oh, I know you. He's like, you're from boxing. He's like, make sure you're fucking training on Monday. He's like, actually, where you live, I'll pick you up. And then he started picking me up and then I started um, training, properly. training properly and, and then I had a fight shortly after that. I lost, had another fight, lost that. But then the third fight, I, we fought at States and I won won that. And that was um, that was sort of the start of a pretty good little boxing career. So yeah. between that, I was like sort of 14 between 14 and 17, uh, I had like 20, 22 fights and about six exhibitions and that was, I took it pretty seriously and I'm still, still around boxing now and, and stuff like that and that's. Tell me about the first time you got arrested. Went to jail. Yeah. Prior to me doing that thing, there's, in Labor Park, there's a bunch of, you know, unsavory characters. I've realised now like there's a lot of, a lot of, I can't remember where I learned this, but a lot of, there's a lot of sex, there's a big sex offender population in, in Labor Park for whatever reason. Which is weird because there's a bunch of schools. My first job out of school was like sales. It was like those guys you see on the street and they sort of corner you down, really annoying. Um, but I loved it. And I met my first girlfriend at that job and she she was from New Zealand and she, and that was Grace, and then she moved um, She moved in with me. She was living with me for a period of time and she was working at Blacktown. She got a different job. She was working at Blacktown at Gregory Jewelers. This guy, big Fijian guy, used to sort of start looking at her through the window and then he'd start coming into the work and then he was just like being a bit weird. And then, so this this sort of developed over a period of like three months to where he's sort of like getting on the same bus as her and then he's getting off at the same stop and then he's following her. Well, he's well, stalking her. Yeah, so it like just kept a little bit more every day, literally every time she was working and then to the point of he would get to like two houses away from my house and then turn off before she'd come home. And she'd come home and she was like such a nice like – little girl like she would just be freaking freaking out like shook and I'm like who was that like what what's going on and we're up at the shops and seeing the guy and she sort of turned into a ghost and buckled and I was like oh that's the guy let me confront him she's like no no don't do anything so I'm like all right just go in the shop and get us a drink then here's some money she's like okay cool goes in the thing and I, as soon as she goes in I just grab her and say listen don't be fucking following her home and if you're gonna keep following her home like and we'll punch out in blah, blah blah like he sort of arced back up and then we had a we had a fight right there she walks out and we're mid-punch on. She's like, what are you doing? And I, as she walked out, like I hit him and, he, and dropped him at the moment and I was like, oh, sorry. Boom, punch him again and then run off and she's now angry at me. And so I already had a fight with this guy. Then a few years later, so my brother, he's got a bunch of kids, doesn't have custody of all of them. He's got like sort of mixed custody. And his baby mother um, just by chance had moved like two doors down from this guy. And so long story short, they'd caught him in the in the yard in his underwear, like one o'clock in the morning, with his arm trying to—he's trying to get in the window, doing weird shit, doing weird shit. And it's my niece's bedroom. She's like eight, seven or eight at the time. And so I was like, "Fuck this guy again!" You know, fucking hell. Let me just go down and confront. Like oh, I heard about it, and I was like, "Oh, it's okay. I'll confront him, whatever." And then I—I I just lost a really big job, so I was a bit depressed, and I was like getting up late and things like that. So then I was like, I, I woke up in the morning. My whole family's over. She's in there in the lounge room. She's crying like she's hysterical. I'm like, fucking hell, like this is a bit more than I thought. I'm like, fuck, whatever. I didn't even say anything. I just went outside. I was riding a motorbike at the time. I just jumped on my motorbike and rode, rode down to where I sort of knew where he lived and then went down to his place and I was like, oh, surely I'll just see him out and about. Didn't see him. So I just jumped off my bike and went to – I seen an old lady coming out of the complex. He lives in like a flat. And I was like, oh, where's – where's the old mate live and she's like oh there I'm like oh thanks whatever got up to his door and I'm knocking on the door I said man come outside I just want to speak to you blah, blah. and he's like oh straight away he's arguing with me through the door he's like oh fuck off you know I was, I was looking for cigarette butts I wasn't fucking he's arguing with me I was like what are you talking about we're having an argument through the door ripped his screen door off went in his house and then flogged him gave him a big hiding like he turned to rage punches at him pretty bad like put him in a coma and, and whatnot and then yeah, then the police come around and 
they thought I knew it was me. Um, they arrested me on suspicion, and then we got uh, we got bail because I'd never done any done anything at this point. I got bail, and I was on bail for about eighteen months, a long while actually. And then I got locked up at that point. So during that time, I'd then started in property, learned how to become a BDM. So I started in the call center, worked my way up, got into a BDM role. BDM as a real estate agent. Yeah. Yep. So like just doing the sales. Yep. As a buyer's in a in a buyer's agency. Yep. So doing the sales. So that's like two fifty k plus job. Um, then bought my first property, and then was tra- I got my mortgage broker certificate as well. So done all that in the period before I just got locked up, and I'm thinking, you know, surely this is going to sort of help me, whatever. Got to this point in my career, and I've, and as well, like through my life, like there was a couple other opportunities. Like I ha- had a project management traineeship lined up, which I was meant to be on two fifty k a year. That got taken off me because I was meant to. I got charged with with something and it was meant to be a caution, but it wasn't a caution. They, they said it was going to be a caution. They char- actually charged me with it. And so that was on my record and I got this job. It took three months to get it. That got taken off me and I was like, shit, but I'll start again. Got into jeep rocking. It was like laboring and blah, blah, whatever. And that's when I'd done that thing and then got this job opportunity, built my way up. And I'm like, this is the second time like we're on to a ticket. Like I'm going to get my family out and we're going to do really well. Sentencing date and then boom, locked up. How, how much you get? And I was like, fuck. Um, one year, one year on the bottom, two year, two and a half on the top. So you got two and a half years, but a, a minimum year. Yeah. So it was like, that was the, the judge was like trying to give me the most, because it has to be over two years for it to not be a suspended, suspended sentence. Right. And he's like, I'm not going to give you that. I can't, I can't give you that because it's, it ruins uh, precedent and, and a bunch of things like that. And he's like, and I can't condone vigilantism and whatever else. But you can see that he was sort of like sympathetic. Yeah, in a way. Um, so the, sympathetic to what you were defending. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you were, you were sort of defending, you might have been angry and all sort of stuff, but you were defending um, your niece and your family's right not to be interfered with. Exactly. By widows. Yeah, that's exactly and like that, how and, I say and, it. In an ethical sense. I mean, mm. not, you know, and, and, but at the same time, can't you, say, you can't get an obligation. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. They're, they're the rules. Um, but but still, uh, your, the reason you did it yeah. was okay. It's what you did. And so for the, yeah, and I think that's inevitably why I sort of got looked after to a degree because I met people in there on one of the charges. Because the charges the jar, were, yeah. yeah. So first charge, they tried to charge me with attempted murder right, because he had a pretty hard time in on life support and things like that. But we got those dropped and it was home invasion and inflict grievous bodily harm. Um, so home invasion has got to stand on parole of 10 years. So that's, which means like a generally a minimum, it got up to like 20 or 25, I think. That's one. And then G- GBA just got like four. So I got one. One year, you know, so I was like very lucky and like pretty early on, I was like, oh, spewing, whatever. But then I met a couple of people in there, like being Aboriginal and going to jail, it's not very hard at all. Like, it's because the, the brothers look after you. Yeah, the brothers got it all sorted in there. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. So they run the joint. Exactly. Yeah. No matter where you go. And so um, they made it clear to me, it's like, mate, you got fucking lucky. Like, you got someone looking after you or whatever. And as well, once once everyone realized what I was in there for, I was a bit of a celebrity. They loved yeah, yeah. what I was in there for. Like, this guy. He better, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, yeah. I get looked after. Eat some tuna. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> eat some tuna. So, so I remember you telling me once that um, one of the bosses in the jail, one of the more influential blokes in the jail, mm. so you went up sharing a cell with him. Ended up, yeah. So that was like, that's I don't know. pretty if, important. It was pretty, like I had a pretty pretty cool time in jail. So I don't know if I, if I was reading Mike Tyson's book at the time and he had a similar time and he's obviously Mike Tyson. I'm not Mike Tyson, right? But um, so pretty much what happened is like I get into get into jail and I ran into this, um, one of these lads that my brother used to grow up with and knock around with in, in Doomside and he's like, oh, you're Gimbus little brother. He's like, oh, he's like, come on, look after you or whatever. Blah, blah. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm in the cell with my cousin. They're in a three out. He's like, um, 
he's like, I'm going to sell my cousin. He's like, once he moves out, you can, you can move in. Um, and so once I got, I got moved into, so there's a bit of bouncing around, like you got to move through several sort of jails and, or like, uh, wings until you get to your, to your wing. Um, and then once I got there, there's my Robbie and he sort of looked after me and he's like, yeah, he's coming here when we get there. Now his cousin, Shane, he was like, he liked, liked a bit of boxing too. And he's like, oh, we'll start doing some training. So I'm like, all right, cool. So we start doing some training, um, doing a little bit of boxing, like in the, in the yard and everyone's like, oh, having a bit of look and like, that's cool. Um, and then one brother comes up to us and he's like, oh, that, that guy wants to speak to you. Points, points out these three scary followers at the back of the, the back of the jail, you know, I go over there and like, oh, how you going? He's like, oh, what's your name, young brother? And I was like, oh, Brad. He's like, where are your people from? And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. Like I was adopted and start like giving him the yarn about that. And he says, oh, you got to, you know, when you get out, you got to look out, look out, look for who your people are. He's like, my people, Gamilaroi. He's got Gamilaroi tattooed right across here. And I'm like, oh, pretty cool. And he's like, he's like, he introduces himself and his two mates. And so got one broke. He's really stocky, scary looking fellow. Like he, he's a bit fair skinned, but he's. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocky ass. And then real tall fellow and he's ripped up, looks like an action man, you know, um, with a big rat tail. And then another guy, he's got the gnarliest, like he's the scariest looking fellow you've ever seen. He's got the gnarliest scarlet going straight down here in a glass eye. It's like, you know, where it's like really, really light blue, like where it's nearly white. He's like looking at you like that. And he could see a like a spike sticking out, which is like a, a blade, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck, you know, scared. Of, like the whole thing's like pretty intimidating. Um, he's like, oh, you do a bit of boxing? And I said, yeah, like, you know, done a bit of boxing, had a couple of fights. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, cool. He's like, I've had a couple as well. <laughs> Playing it down hard. He's like, I've had a couple too. Um, he's like, come out in the yard tomorrow. We'll do some training. I'm like, all right, no worries. Good to meet you, blah, blah, whatever. Go back to my thing. As soon as I get back, they're like, what do you want? You know, I'm like, oh, I know. I just was asking about boxing. He's like, oh, okay, no worries. Realized later, he's like, so there's a lot of people that are respected in jail, but he was probably the top person in the whole system. Like there was nearly no one that had the sort of fit. There was like bikey gangs would pay him to not bash their people because he would he would get them in a cell and and rip them, you know, yeah, and get money off them and shit Um, because he was just so feared, you know, like and he could fight, like he could really fight. And as well, he knew knew how to fight like professionally, like he had pro experience. Like he was probably one of the better trainers that I've had and I've been through and seen a lot of people, you know, he knew what he was doing. And so anyway, he was was like, come, we'll do some training. So I meet him in the yard next day and then we're doing training straight away. We're doing doing a bit of pads. As soon as I connect on the first pad, everyone's sort of like, 
what's going on here? Like, and so I'm doing pads and we got a good tempo, like, you know, yeah, boxing, yeah. like, you know, when you got a good like, chemistry yeah. with someone and yeah. we're- It's like hitting a golf ball real good. Yeah. And he's like, bang, we're hitting it and he's putting us through and he's speeding it up and we're going, going really well and blah, blah, blah. And it, pre- at this point, uh, everyone stopped. The whole jail's like stopped and looking. There's like 140 boys in the yard, right? Scary at the best of times. But then so he's putting us through blah, blah, blah. after he's like, okay, cool, come, we'll keep, keep training. And so over, so I was in, I was in that wing for- Eight months. Weird. I shouldn't have been there. So that was in the maximum. I shouldn't have been there. I should have been over at minimum. Um, but it was some sort of weird thing. I kept asking the guards, I'm like, what's going on? When am I getting moved or whatever? And they're like, yeah, you should be out of here. And then I'd catch up with that same guard a couple of weeks later. I'd say, what's going on with that? And they're like, oh, yeah, and just like avoid it. And then, and that happened with everyone. And then I realized, I think the cop had something to do with it because he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about it. And I couldn't, um, and they tried to appeal it and we got that knocked out straight away. And so I think that was his last little trying to, yeah, yeah, trying to get me, uh, trying to make it a problem. I think because most people would have a really hard time in, in Maxo for sure, yeah. for sure. It's, it's rough, it's wild, and a lot of people come in and they, it's like remand and they, they're trying to prove themselves, and that's where all the shit happens. Like there's a lot of drugs going through there, a lot of fights happening, and full on tension, full on, yeah. And so um, minimum's not like that. Minimum's pretty crazy, but um, but anyway. But so then over that eight months, well, over the first like three months, it got pretty pretty intense. So pretty much we we're training. Started getting really fit. I'm just like, I'm just going to focus on this. Like, I'm just training and reading and I'm not doing any drugs. And this is sort of why he took a liking to me because in our community in general, but then also, especially in jail, drugs annihilate it. Like, they smash it. And especially in, like, remote areas, like out in the country, drugs smash the whole community. Like, all the strong Aboriginal men, they, what they could be and what they are is it's not good because as a result of drugs. He liked the fact that I was like strong. He's like, we need more brothers like you, like and like obviously like himself, and that's why we sort of stuck together. And he's like, he was an older fellow, and I was a younger fellow, and we were just sort of trying to be role models in that sort of way without even knowing. But um, so then, he, anyway, he's training me up. There's some pretty heavy duty characters in there. I'm not going to say their names, but there was some pretty heavy duty, like high profile gangsters in there, finishing up like 20 year sentences and things like that. One guy in there, so actually two guys in there. So one guy was like a triple murderer. Like he'd done a bunch of shootings for, you know, sort of gangs out in Bankstown and whatnot. And then um, another guy, he's he's dead now. They killed him. Like he got the death penalty back in America, but they wouldn't. Um, he's a, He was a double murderer. He's like a Russian big Muslim guy. So anyway, he got, got to a point where I'm, I'm sparring everyone. Like he's getting me to spar people. Um, then we're training. He's putting me through like fitness camps, get me fit. Like I'm fit as, fit as a fiddle. Um, and I was like sparring some weight like there's no weight division so i'm sparring big guys like and this guy abu who's a, the big bold russian guy he's like 120 kilos literally and i'm like 80 or something and he's like don't worry it's all good anything happens got your back whatever because i'm sparring everyone and slapping everyone like no one can really fight and so he's just doing it so i can actually get a proper craft and whatever and then um he's like all right get get some um He's like, get some time with this guy. He's done some Muay Thai and, you know, he, he sort of put his hand up because I was slapping everyone in the wing. He's like, all right, you can – he's like, I'll spar the guy, you know, blah, blah. Can't speak much English. And he's like, all right, let's – so we get sparring and straight away, like Muay Thai fighters are so like – yeah. So wide open. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't want to get into like, – because we're in the Muslim wing as well. He's Muslim. My guy's Muslim too, but he, he's Muslim and I'm sort of like – touching his forehead, letting him know that I could like hit him. And then he just lunges forward like with a couple of big hooks and I just boom, landed a straight right and this he come again and landed another one. Like a boom, step back, bang, and got him with the bridge of the nose and blood just dropped out. Just like boom, on the floor, like a whole scene. Everyone's like, oh, not good. And I'm like, oh, shit, like not good. <laughs> not good. And so we ended up in a full scrap. Like me and this guy, like, and he's like 
trying to lay on me, punching on and whatever. And with big guys, like you just got to, I learned this from just pure survival. <laughs> so just got to punch him in the stomach because they get gashed really quickly. So I just put him out on his chest and I punch him in the stomach and he's trying to knock my head off and then try to bring him back down to level. Like it's not getting stopped. Like so I'm like, Fuck, just got to fight for my life here. Punch him in the body, bring him back down to gas and we're boxing again and he starts loading up, getting them hard. So I get back in there, boop, boop, boop. And then, um, and that was okay. Like I, I sort of beat him up that time. But then a week later he wanted to spar again. <laughs> and so we spar again. And this time he sort of, he got me, he marked me up pretty well and whacked me around. Um, and then one of the other brothers who was a bit bigger and he could box as well, but he was a bit more quiet and reserved, um, didn't want to get too involved in it. Then he come and sort of stood up for me and slapped him. Um, that was cool. But so we had a pretty, I had a pretty intense time in jail. It was good. I was smiling everyone and whatever else. And then at this point, um, so Terry was, he was, that was my sort of leader dude. And then he was in a cell with his cousin. So he's right in the, there's like a one top cell, which is up the back in the middle. Um, and he's there with his cousin and he doesn't get set up with anyone and everyone's actually scared of him. And he's like, you want to come in the cell with us? And so then I'm in the cell in a three out with him and he's running the whole wing, like just runs everything. And I'm in there with him. Like he's having meetings with like guys that I've seen on the news, like they're having to catch up in the cell, closing the door, you know, I'm, I'm there just reading my book. Like, you know, it's just like thinking, shit, man, this is crazy. Having feeds with them, like pretty cool and dense and, and wild experience. Don't recommend, you know, seven out of ten. Don't recommend, but yeah. but it's um, but but it what's well, really important for me, Brad, here is because I mean you've gone on to do good things in relation to business and, and particularly in re- in relation to helping yeah your community build wealth. That's mm-hmm. that's your game now, right? Yes, in in particular wealth, and and, and you have lots of tools uh, for, to help your community out, like insurance, you know, broking services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, what did you? What do you think you learned or took away from? All those experiences, like mm. hardship experiences, but r- really good parents. Yeah. But then getting exposed to some you know, stuff, various yeah. other people throughout your life. What did you take from that that you've now taken into your business environment? Yeah. Okay. What, what do you think that is? So, um, your life is 100% like your fault, right? So, whatever, like, whatever it is, like, your, whatever your reality is, like, it, how you start, it's not your fault, but how you finish is, you know? And so, and it's all within your control. I think like you can, and also there's no one there to save you. So it's like, it's twofold. Like it's completely up to you and you got to figure that out on, on your own, right? Because there's no one coming to save you. Everyone's doing their own thing. And, and we don't deserve race. to be saved either. No, absolutely well, not. We should be saying, well, why, why, why not? not? Yeah, what's my deal? Why don't I get a better deal? Exactly. Everyone's got their own like hardships and hurdles to face. And I think like with a bit of adversity, like you get the tools that you, or either you die or you survive, right? And if, it, if you survive, you get some tools that a lot of other people can't. Like this is where I, with, with jail, it's a blessing. Like I got more than I lost for sure. Because I'm able to see, I got the, the blessing of like perspective. I could, I could see and I know that no one's coming to save you. And I, I believe as an Aboriginal person, like, you know, the, the government's relatively against you and systems are against you and whatever else. Um, but so what? Like, so fucking what? Like, you got to figure that shit out anyway. Like, what am I going to do? Just because I've like, from what people would think is, you draw a short straw in terms of being Aboriginal and whatever else. What am I going to do? Let that affect me and my whole family? And like, you're gonna like, what? I don't know what happens after you die. But I know that while I'm here, I want to live a good life and I want my family to benefit off having a good life and give back to them and you know have good things and go out to nice dinners and you know we have enough money to do what we want to do and box if I want to, like, go to holidays if I want to, all that sort of shit. Um, and I'm not going to accept that I can't do that just because I'm Aboriginal or, or whatever else. And so you got to put that shit to the side. Like I can see that definitely things are against you, but you got to figure that out anyway. I think 
yeah, no one's coming to save you. It's completely your responsibility to make the life that you want. And also it's completely within your power. Like it's all about whatever you believe and whatever you think and whatever you, whatever you can see in your mind. If you just commit to a plan and just start working towards it, like things open up for you. So you leave jail, you get out, you get out after a year or whatever it was. Mm. Um, what was the first thing you did apart from going and see your parents? Yeah, I had a steak first thing. <laughs> got back to work. After three days, I was back to work, yeah. So where did you go to work? So back to the company I was at. Yep, they took you back in? Yeah. That's great. Well, they had to. At the point, they were um, the boss was in some hot water because he started ripping off some clients. And so what had happened was where we were working, as I said, don't want to name any names, but where we were working, um, the boss started – uh, ripping off clients. He ended up on a current affair and things like that. So while I was in jail, some of my friends that we used to work with, they were coming to see us. And one of them was actually the licensee of the company. And I was like, mate, this is, why don't you just set up the company? We can just work for you. And she didn't really buy into that. But then by the, by the time we got to me nearly getting out, she was like, yeah, we're going to, you know, we'll start a business, get out. And, and, and basically when I, when I got out, we started hitting the ground running. We started working towards so pretty much what had happened, he was ripping off clients. When I got out three days in, started working, realized it was pretty wild. Like we're sort of having to represent clients. He's ripping them off, blah, blah, blah. Convinced her we should set up a business. Then we started working on setting up the business. And what um, is the business? It was a buyer's agency. Buyer's agency. Yeah. yeah. So buying real estate for? Generally real, property investors. Helping help investors. Yeah, yeah, helping property investors build property portfolios uh, and build wealth through property. And that's with her. You want to set your own business up? Yep. You're still with me, her today? What, today? No, yeah. no, no. So, so, so it was like me, her, like a bunch of the crew that worked there as well, and then my other friend Matt Wilson. He runs a really successful company called WT Capital. He's a champion. And so he he was sort of like a mentor for me for, for a long while as well. Um, but he saw what I couldn't pretty early on and, and got out and then started working and building his own business. Fast forward like two years into running this sort of business and helping build, set that up, our relationship went sour. Wasn't working really well. I had a couple of epiph- I had a bit of a realisation as well. So my dad and like my dad's obviously quite sick. I thought he was going to pass away when I was in jail. So when I got locked up, I was like, fuck, you know, I'm going to miss out on the opportunity of buying him a house, Ferrari, all that sort of stuff. And like I was defeated for a little while and that was really tough. That's where boxing helped a lot. But then I was get back, get your shit back together, reading, writing goals out every day. And I just, I was like, if nothing else, I'm just going to manifest it. I'm just going to, he's not going to die. I'm going to be able to buy him a house and we're just going to figure that shit out and just would visualize it every day. Um, and then got out, started this business, started working, fast forward down two years down the track and I was making pretty good money, uh, but not getting where I wanted to be. And I didn't have my name on anything. I couldn't actually own any business or, or anything like that. And I hadn't actually bought a property back again. Like it was just not really, it was just going too slow. Um, and then actually towards the end of our relationship with the chick, um, I went to your seminar. So it was like your uh, men- seminar. mentored masterclass. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I see. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I came up with, I'm like indigenous, you know, property, finance, blah, blah, something, question mark, circle around it. And I was like, fuck, and I still got the, got the picture on my phone. And I was like, shit, you know. And then from that, the relationship just went down real quick, went, went, out of, went out of shape really quick. Um, my dad got really sick and nearly died one time and then – Bit personal, but yeah, my, my brother tried to sort of kill himself all at one day, and I was like, "Fuck, what am I doing? Like, I'm gonna miss out on this shit. And I'm chasing this thing that's just eluding me." And I'm like, "This is not how it's meant to go." Um, and so I had that conversation with her, and I'm like, "I'm not gonna be able to. I can't. I can't this can't continue." I realized that she wasn't gonna give me a piece of the business either. And I'm like, you know, I don't really want to work for anyone. Want to work for myself, um, all this sort of stuff. And she, you know, that we sort of went our separate ways in pretty good terms at that time. But then I had this idea, and I was sort of working on it. When I worked at an Aboriginal business in the meantime, that was called Link Up, New South Wales. So in between me leaving there, my dad 
as I said, he found his mum and all that. He found that found her through an org called Link Up New South Wales. They, whatever job they do, whatever they done a good thing for for my dad. That's that's great. And so at the time we went on a reunion, they'd found one of his cousins, called him up, said we found one of your cousins, let's link his up, sort of thing. And so I'm out of a job, went and done the reunion, met who's now my uncle Brendan, um, and. I was like, man, this is a great thing that you're doing. I'm in between work at the moment and I've got a bunch of skills. Like I'm, you know, done a bunch of sales. Like I'm pretty good at what I do in general. Um, I'm like, let me help out, you know? And they're like, sure. I come in, we can sort of help. I had sort of a random job. I was just doing whatever. I helped, helped them do one reunion and then I was one of out, out of there. I just wanted to give back and sort of do something. In that time, I was using that time also to set up Indigenous wealth. So I had that idea, was working towards it. I'm like, this is the closest thing that I can see. Let me just start working on that. Started working on that, started getting some clients and then I'm working here as well. Once I got like my first actual client, I just stopped working there and started going full For Indigenous wealth. For Indigenous wealth. So your business is called Indigenous wealth. Indigenous wealth, yeah. And what's your product? So what do you do for Indigenous people? So what we do is like we are committed to helping Aboriginal people become successful. Yep. And then the way that we do that is through property investing. But how we'll do that in the future is just – all financial services. So what we want to create is a 100% Aboriginal owned and operated business. So by Aboriginal people, for Aboriginal people, that you can pretty much you can get all your money, uh, everything money's related, sorted in the one place. By so you more. teach them how to save money. You te- get yeah. the deposit. So we do like financial uh, literacy. So we do like courses. Yep. Um, we help them with, so building a portfolio. So getting a loan, finding the property, doing the legals, property management and insurance, like that whole end-to-end thing. We're starting to do like accounting. Uh, we're starting to do, as I said, finance, like all things finance. I think I spoke to you a bit, bit yep. about that as well. And then we just get into more things like later on. But So how's your, how's your client base look now? It's going great. So our goal is to make 100 Aboriginal millionaires by 2025. Yep. So far I've got 17. 17, okay, that's very good. And in terms of sort of um, flow of, you know, like property property purchases. I mean, what, what does that look like? I mean, how many properties would you purchase or how, what's the value of the properties you might purchase on behalf of them yep. in, a, say, in a year or over the last couple of years? What are we looking at? How, mu- or how much worth yeah, like, in terms of millions? Yeah. Uh, far out. Uh, it's hard to put a number. We've got about- on a yearly base. What do you do? 20, 30 million? It's been, yeah, like now this year, it's been like it's because it's been about three years in yep. only. First year, like nothing, you know, four or five clients. Second year started to get a bit of traction, but now we're starting to get in like a good uh, $10 million worth nearly a month, like five, month. $10 million a month. That's we're a starting lot. to get away. We're starting to get, get them out there. So I bring on a bunch of new staff now and just to sort of help that. But we're growing like exponentially. And, and you do definitely mortgages needed. as well. You organize mortgages for Yeah, them. Yeah. So, so we're you, sort of like the consultant and then yeah. we bring in all the services together. And then what we're starting to do over time is to get those owned and run by Indigenous wealth and run by Aboriginal uh, Aboriginal people. On one side, there's, you know, when we started, all the research that we could find was that there was a less than 100 Aboriginal property investors. I'm like, wow. that's fucking broken, right? So on one side, we want to make more investors. But on the other side, like we can't find any, there's not many, I think there's, only, there's like 20 Aboriginal accountants, um, Nearly no Aboriginal brokers. If there's any Aboriginal brokers out there, please reach out. We have More brokers. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so we want to create that. So pretty much we want to create the career pathways and make that – make because there's a lot of money to be made in finance and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So I think, you know, our people should be in there as well and learning that and understanding it um, and making money off it. And if we can do it for mob, even better, you know, end to end. And where are you located? We're in Sydney. So we're at Zetland at the moment. Yep. Um, but we've got clients in every state. So, so if if I'm an Aboriginal and um and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, I wouldn't mind having a crack at owning a bit of real estate. Mm. 
how do I contact you? Like, a, what's you got a website? Yeah, or? go on website. So just yeah. www.indigenouswealth.com.au. Yep. Reach out to us on yeah on email. Just Brad. And then, and what's the sort of conversation look like? So you know, I I go and see you know Brad might pick up my my inquiry and yeah. Brad calls me and he says, what do you do? You say to me, okay, Mark, you've got to save a deposit. You take me through that process, mate. You yeah. say you get a deposit, Mark. This is yeah, so pretty, so we got Yeah, so we got like clients on all ends of the spectrum, right? So we got like clients that are just like looking for, well, how do I even get in a position to do that? So one of the boys will give you a call, explain that to you, give you some information. Like um, a lot of clients use their super to do stuff as well. So we can you point you in the right direction. Like the, the ATO can help you find like lost super, which helps a lot of mob as well. Um how to save, like credit repairers, things like that, get in a good position. Then you've got other clients who's like already got argued, deposit. already got deposit. Like we've got clients that have got like, you know, a couple million in equity even. It's like, well, what do I do? It's like pretty straightforward. And pretty much what we want to do is like sit down with them, understand their goals and where they are today, using that goal, help them create a strategy that'll get them to the, like from where they are today to that end goal. And then our team walk you through that entire process from start to finish. So our job is to really help you achieve those intangible goals. So it's because, you know, no one invests in property to be a property investor. Like I wasn't like six and thinking, can't wait to be a property investor. But you want to be successful. You want to have nice things and all that sort of stuff. So it's like getting those intangible goals. Like you want to set up your kids, you want to live in a nice house and all those things. Like what do they really look like? And what do we need to do over the five, 10, 15 years, whatever, to get there through property? How old are you now? 27. So you're 27. You've lived like pretty full life. Couple of lives. <laughs> Couple of lives. Um, but you now got a business. Yeah. It's just sort of what you wanted. Yeah. You, you, and you're, you're talking to your mob. Yeah. You're building a brand. You're on the straight and narrow. Have you bought some properties for yourself? You got something? Oh, yeah, got plenty. Yeah, got, that's the first your thing. Your own, so. own little portfolio going on. Yep. Which is great. And yep. you continue to build it. Do you buy your mum and dad something? Did. Yeah. They yes. actually live the, the the dream full full realization. So mum and dad living on the water, pretty much beachfront. They got a townhouse that's like twenty meters from the water. So up in Gorakin, Central Coast. Wow, so that's cool. Nailed it. No, so happy that. they're so, happy as Larry. So Brad's sitting there now. You must be pretty feeling pretty. I'm pretty proud. Pretty proud of yourself. Yeah, and, and sort of pretty happy. Yeah, but do you still are you still driven? More than ever. Yeah, more than ever. Because now I've like I've always proved stuff to myself, but I've really proved it like that I can. Well, it's. I wish I could express that it's literally whatever you can believe. It's whatever you can believe to be true, and whatever you can see in your mind, and then set a plan. What do you need to do from that, from here, to get there? And it doesn't matter if it's fifty pages long, but you got a plan, and just start at it, and just start working at it, and just keep bringing it into your life. The universe well, works in funny ways, but it works. What is it you put down to? How it is you didn't dip over to the wrong side. In other words, feel yeah. sorry for yourself and sort of fall into the puddle. Mm. What, what, what's the difference? Do you, do you reckon it might be your adopted parents, just how good they were to you? I mean, what's the one thing that just kept you going? Well, that helped as well, but I just, like, I definitely wasn't, like, immune to falling over in the puddle. I've definitely got my face wet a million times. But why'd you get back up then? What the fuck's down there? But you what, what do you reckon that is? <laughs> yeah, I get it. But yeah, no. people do that. They'll just want to sit there. Yeah, and I know. But so I just, what, what, what I, was it that Bradley Gimbert had that pushed him down the other way? You know, like, well, I uh, think, yeah, I think like there's a quote that always like sort of so I probably get tattooed on it, but it's like you know the same boiling water that softens a potato hardens the egg, right? So it's not circumstances that you're in; it's what you're made of. Yeah. And so you get to decide like what the fuck you're made of, and. Like if someone asked you, you ask anyone, like someone that's wallowing, like what are you made of? They're not going to say, oh, shit, I'm a piece of shit. Blah, blah, blah. They might say it at that moment, but no one's going to truly believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. There's no one that's going to come and save you. And But if you can 
overcome that. Like it's all on the other side of that. But like, did you see that as a kid? Someone yeah. else? Did you see your dad in that situation? Your mom? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What, 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 what have you seen? Like, or is that just, that's just Brad making that that's decision? That's Brad, yeah. I just, yeah. I don't know. I wish I could say like, but it's just, I've always just like been a big observer. I don't know. I think I've just always just seen like, what it, there's been a lot of what I don't want. You know, and it's like, well, fuck that. Like, you got to do something. You can't do nothing and get – like, if you don't go after what you want, you've got a 100% chance of not getting it. Yeah, that's you know? for sure. So, you got to be in the game. you got to be in the game. So yeah. it's like you just got to – like, and I've not been like, you know, there's been people that have been better than me, like more talented than me, but you just don't – you just keep fucking moving. Like, because at some point you'll get there. Like, you just got to figure out where you're going and – start on that path and either one or two things going to happen. Either you're going to get there, you're going to fucking die. So, Yeah, well, you, you literally it. were in those situations. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like, like that's that's literally it. Like the, in, there was a period in like literally like for example jail and I was sitting there and I was like, well, like I want to be able to buy my parents. I want of these things and big dreams, blah, blah, and I was on a path and I was on a path several times and I'm thinking, well, that's pretty much gone. My dad's going to die while I'm in jail. I'm fucking criminal now. I'm not going to get a job. But I can box, so fuck it. Let's just fight and box, right? And we're just going to be a world champion. That was like one of the goals that I had. And then when I got out, like then obviously you just weigh things up. And now I do Indigenous wealth as opposed to boxing because I can have a much bigger impact. And if I can do really well in a short amount of time, then who knows, maybe I'll go back to boxing. But that's, you just, where are you now? What's the opportunities that you have? And do the fucking best one. That's going to get you closer to your goal. Because what else the fuck are you going to do? There's someone in 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 jail now or in bad circumstances. Yeah, what would you say? Hundred percent. I say like picture. I said this to one of the boys at work yesterday. Just write out a one pager of like what do you what what's your life meant to be like? What do you want that to be? What is that story book ending? What's that What's that look like? And just get really clear on that shit and visualize it and envision it and look at it as many times as you need to for you to believe that it's a possibility, you know, because you got thoughts running around your head and they're just that thought. But you get them out on paper and now they're here in this reality, they're real. And then from there, just write out the steps that you would need to take from here to there. It doesn't matter if it's a fucking Bible worth, but just figure that out. Because most of the time it's not that, it's not as far as you perceive in your head. And But now it's like there's a, there's a tangible sort of way to get there. And then weigh it up. Like just start moving. Just start do do the first one and do the second one and see how you're going after that. Just start doing something. Don't sit there and fucking wait for who what are you even waiting for? You know, you're waiting yeah, for no one's going to give it for, give it to you. Like even and especially if you're in jail, what are you waiting for the guard to come knock on your cell? The same one that comes and tips your fucking bed up every day. You're waiting for him to come knock on your cell and say, Here's your whole life, you mate, you just gotta like set out the steps for you. What we know is that anyone in this life can do anything. You obviously you can't do everything, but you can do anything. There's people out there that have done things from a worse place than you they've done bigger things you know so your goal arguably it's it's small fish to fry you can probably get it you know you can probably do that you can probably do it you know most of the time it's like to get you know i can't weigh on people's goals but whatever it is as long as you can believe that to be true and you make that a part of yourself it's inevitably going to happen or you're going to die so one or two things are going to happen and even if you do die at least you died in pursuit of your goal but most of the time you're going to get there so be sort of bottom of the line, I know I don't want to simplify too much, but it's sort of like get your idea, get your thoughts, put down on paper and have mm. a fucking crack. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's that, that's not even simple. That's hundred percent it. That's the whole science. Yeah, and just and just keep marching. Hundred percent. No bro. matter what. You never get off your feet. You know, you gotta stay on your feet. That's right. That, that's really important. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, you land on your ass, but you gotta get back up on your feet. This is where boxing helped a lot too. Like this because totally. the same thing. You're gonna get cracked and get in the mouth. What are you gonna do? Like you're gonna get lay down. No, you just get back up and have another go. Yeah. Might yeah. win. 
But that's one of the great things about boxing and fighting just generally, like, um, I mean, you know, like you know, wrestling or whatever it is. Yeah. It's, it's, the point is once you're in there, you're on your own. Cause then, every, and by the way, no one's going to help you. Yep. And then life's the same. Yep. No one owes you anything. And once you're in there in business, in your, like you in business or you, if, if you're in the ring, you're on your own and you got to do your best. Sometimes you're going to get, um, you're going to get messed up. You're going to get mm. pushed around. You're going to get dominated. Uh, you got to cop them. Sometimes you got to cop them. Yep. Um, Sounds good. Get it. But sooner or later, um, you're gonna you have to respond. And it's up to fucking you. Yep. And uh, I mean, I think for me, I mean, I'm 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 so glad that I paid a very small part in uh, in, in in the stories. But for me, having some a young man like you, particularly come from pretty pretty disadvantaged circumstances, and I don't want to overplay that, but disadvantaged circumstances because I know yep. you don't want to overplay it either. Nah, sweet. But the way your positive attitude is, and and the the fact that you structure your mind around that that attitude, for me is, is the reason I wanted to get you on the show. Is I find it really inspirational. You know, it's a and it's actually quite motivational. And it's very very important for people to hear this, particularly people who might be sitting around, sort of struggling a little bit. Mm. You know, like, and there are a lot of people struggling, especially at the moment. And they might not be in jail. Yeah, be just in general. Yeah, just in general. And uh, it's it's hard to stay up. And motivated yourself, but sometimes you hear someone like you talk, and you think, "Fuck, he's had a pretty, pretty fucking hard go. He's still going." And look at you, smiling your head off. Bought a, <laughs> bought a joint for your parents, twenty meters from the water. Yeah. Did you buy him Ferrari? Not yet. That's next up. Next so, up, hundred percent. Still maybe, wants a red one. If if your dad's listening to this, what's your dad's name? Les. Hey, Les. <laughs> Tell him you don't want a Ferrari, mate, uh, because I don't want him waste his money on Ferrari. <laughs> get a Toyota or something like that. <laughs> get a, get, get a I got him a, I got him a cruiser. I got him a Commodore. You yeah, got to Les, tell him that's good enough. Yeah, he's like, tell right. him to reinvest the money somewhere else. <laughs> Bradley, good to see you, mate. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio production by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis and Dimitri Gremos.